Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Health podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. I'm so excited for this episode. I hope you're all doing great this week. Just a quick programming note, as you plot out your podcast listening schedule, we will be bringing you these conversations bi-weekly. So please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We focus on the stories and ideas from our Agents of Change fellows, but we also have some episodes in the works with special guests, so please stay tuned. Also, to hear more from our fellows, read their essays at ehn.org under the Special Projects tab or at the Agents of Change homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Before we get to it, I just want to acknowledge that we are fortunate to receive support from both readers and listeners like yourself, as well as organizations. Today, I'd like to draw attention to one of our supporters, Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean beauty brand on a mission to get safer products into the hands of everyone. Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in their product formulations, and they advocate tirelessly for safer industry regulations, because they believe beauty should be good for you. You can learn more at beautycounter.com. All right, today I am talking to Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, a postdoctoral research associate at USC. Yoshi is a brilliant researcher and talks about the importance of representation in the environmental health field and connecting her research on pollution to actual solutions for affected communities. Enjoy. All right, I'm super happy to be joined by Yosira Ornelas Van Horn, who also goes by Yoshi. Yoshi, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for asking. Yeah, thanks for being here today. So I wanted to start uh, at the beginning. You are the daughter of Mexican immigrants and grew up in Phoenix, both bicultural and bilingual. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that experience and some of the challenges with having a foot kind of in both worlds of both Mexican heritage and American. Of course. Um, well, <laughs> well, yeah, so it's one of those things where I don't really get to talk to it about it often, especially in, um, you know, the science research and academic world. So, you know, very happy to kick off this podcast with that. And, you know, it's, it's one of those like one of those identity things that as you grow, um, as you become an adult or grow older and become more comfortable with it, you really do start to embrace it, right? And it's kind of this, um, you don't necessarily, growing up, you don't necessarily know where you fit in. It's, you're part of two worlds. And the best explanation that I've ever found, and I know a lot of other people like me reference it, is the Selena Quintanilla movie starring J-Lo, <laughs> where the dad during the van and he's like, you know, we have to be more Mexican than the Mexicans and more American than the Americans both at the same time. And it's exhausting. And that is still true all these decades later. Um, but it does become this power thing. And so, um, you know, that empowerment and that um, gaining that confidence is what allows us to live in both worlds. And that's not necessarily something that as a child you, you understand, right? Cause you're getting ridiculed from both ends. Um, you know, your, your Mexican family of a, or you, you 
you kind of, you know, your accent or your words, you're not pronouncing them right. And you also get that at school um, with people criticizing your writing, um, the way you're speaking, even those words later on when they're like, people are like, oh, well, you don't really sound like you have an accent. Um, and they stick with you, right? And I think there comes a point, especially as we've gotten older, where you really embrace that and you're like, you know what? Um, this is me. This is both. And you learn to live with it um, and you learn to embrace it and really take that as a, as a power that it makes you you. And you were uh, the first in your family to, to graduate college and then went on to become the first Latina to receive a Ph.D. in the environmental health sciences from the University of Arizona. So first of all, congratulations. That is <laughs> awesome. It's enough to get a Ph.D., but to be a trailblazer is a lot on top of that. I'm just curious what these accomplishments meant to you. Right. So, uh, I mean, first of all, for, for college, um, you know, I definitely always credit that to my mom and, and uh, my both my parents, but especially my mom, because she's always like, college, you're going to get a scholarship, you know, do good in school. You know, you're it's going to happen. And um, that expectation you know, I like, I knew that that was always embedded in me. And so school was something I was good at. And uh, for the college road, um, it really was um, what I like to call like a collective effort from communities and different organizations um, that had those, you know, early academic outreach programs involving families, really paving the way for you to know, okay, how do I apply for college? How am I going to pay for college? And, um, you know, I I did it. Uh, it, One of the stories I like to tell is that um, I did, I, I, the reason I picked Tucson, especially University of Arizona, is because it was still far away from my family to kind of get away from those <laughs> expectations. But it was still close to where if, if I need if they needed me, I could be there or they could come see me. And then um, as, you know, faith would have it or just the world playing cruel jokes on me. Oh, my sisters decided that they also wanted to come to the University of Arizona. And so I went from, you know, spending a couple of years there, really enjoying the thing myself to having all of them join me. Um, And I I do love that experience, but it's also one of those, you know, here I was thinking I was going to be alone, but um, they all joined me. And uh, it's one of those experiences that I, I really do love and I'm glad I got to experience because there I was, um, you know, kind of our own little pod helping each other out um, and supporting, you know, there are my sisters, of course, I'm going to support them and they're there for me. Um, and in terms of the PhD, I, I, you know, I, and I've heard some other fellows also talk about this. It was one of those, um, I actually thought I was going to go be a medical doctor um, because that's always often, especially for first generation, the career paths that are kind of put in your purview are, you know, lawyer, engineer, a medical doctor. And you don't really get exposed to all these other different fields that are potentially out there. Um, and it wasn't until I was doing an undergraduate research program that I ended up finding what public health was, and particularly environmental health. Um, and it just so happened that the uh, faculty I had met with also was Latina. And I had never, I think, until that point, had a Latina professor, uh, much less someone that, you know, was also PhD, was in a field that I found fascinating. And that really, um, you know, when we talk about how representation matters, that really was what kind of started thinking, okay, well, if she did it, then I can do it. And I can learn from her to how to actually navigate this world. Um, and so it, it really was, um, you know, accumulation, a lot of things that kind of led me to that. Other than having the representation that that uh, allowed you to see yourself maybe going into this profession, is, is there anything about environmental health, the field? You said it was something you're passionate about. What What is it about the field that drew you into it? 
So for environmental health, I like to think of it as, as you know, it's a very broad field. Um, you have people either studying effects of air pollution, water quality. Uh, it, it really just, it, it's, it's broad. And the best ways that I can put it, it that it's at its core, it's trying to identify how contaminants in our world affect our health, affect people. And specific to that, um, how different um how exposures vary um, through different people, either um, the way that where they're living, um, their activities that they're doing. And that really attracted me because I wanted to know, okay, who is being exposed to these contaminants? Are there disparities? And to that, what can we actually do to reduce them? Because it's not enough knowing, right? We have years, decades of knowing all these things are harmful for you. Um, but especially, I think, in the past few years, it's become more evident that we really need solutions uh, to combat that. And that's something that really attracted to me because it was a way to mix all these different things I was passionate about, um, you know, environmental health, environmental issues, policy, people's health, particularly those of my community. And that and that was really the key to that. You mentioned early on thinking about um environmental health and pollution and, and the potential for disparities in different communities. And I think this is something that uh, certainly you and I, and I think most people are are aware of now, but it, I'll admit in the beginning, you know, when you first learn about air pollution, when I was, what, at 20s or maybe a late teen, it was just thinking about smog or, or vehicles and not thinking about kind of the social dynamics. And I'm wondering um, if that was early on something you were thinking about, the environmental injustice uh, part of this. And if so, how how did you uh, become privy to that so early on? Um, so no, it wasn't something I had, had known about. Um, I mean, not necessarily like directly known about. So I grew up in, um, Westside Phoenix and it is a known, it's an area known for, um, you know, having a lot of <laughs> quote unquote illegal dumping of chemicals due to all the different, um, automobile shops that are around. So it was kind of that unspoken thing. And I didn't actually know that that was, or could contribute to people's health. Right. And through my undergrad research journey, um, I always wanted, one, kind of have the, the science background um, it, of, of knowing, okay, what are chemicals? You know, how do they move in the environment? But also, okay, how do, what does this actually matter? Or, or how does actually people affect health, right? And it wasn't until, um, I'm trying to remember, it, it wasn't until later on, um, I think my first year in graduate school, where I took a course on environmental justice and um, seminars and what that really meant. And if you look at the progression of environmental justice and just talking about, um, you know, who's most impacted, if you go back to the literature um, for the scientific journals, you know, 20, 30 years ago, they allude to it. They say, you know, people of color may be more affected by pollution or they have higher, their high, their higher burden, but they don't ever say they are. They allude to that. And now um, it's, it's, now it's explicit. Now they say, you know what, um, communities of color are disproportionately impacted. This is not because they're, um, you know, they're black or they're Latino. It is strictly because of uh, systematic racism going on. And I do, um, it, it's one of those that I'm very proud of the environmental health field is moving towards that. I think we still have a long way to go to recognize and put those two and two together. But it is something that, you know, you, you used to hear there and there very alluded, not not directly, but now it's explicit. Now we know um, and there's no um, denying that. Right. It's one of those we know this for 30 years and now people are very strong opinionated about it. I think a few years ago um, or decades or whatever, people would have gotten um 
they got a lot of slack for thinking that way or alluding to that. But now we have so much research and paper after paper, um, scientists after scientists showing these patterns. So I want to talk about your doctoral training a little bit because you did work with uh, an environmental justice community. But first, uh, getting up to that point of your PhD, you mentioned this professor that um, this Latina professor that that you saw uh, yourself in. But are there is that a moment uh, that shaped your identity or is there another moment that shaped your identity up to that point that you can kind of pin out? Um, it did. And I'll, I'll give a shout out to her. So Dr. Paloma Beamer, a tenured associate professor at, at the University of Arizona. And so definitely having her, uh, you know, I kind of see her as an icon in our field. <laughs> I don't know if she necessarily think that, but I do. But um, that was definitely a defining moment. Um, you know, her talking about her experiences, uh, you know, visiting her her grandparents in Mexico, uh, something that I definitely really related to. And then her talking about how oftentimes she was the only Latina in some of her, her um, courses and training, right? And something that I was also, um, you know, at the time experiencing, well, um, well, some other ones joined the program later, that's, you know, that's a feeling that always stuck with you. And so that was definitely one of those redefining identity, like, you know what, I, I'm going to put myself out there and, and, you know, see yourself. But another one really was um, working with um, the Dene, which is um, what the Navajo call themselves in their language. And it, it really took me working with, with them um, and their community to kind of find myself back in my own roots and what it really meant to be, um, you know, this, this bicultural bilingual Latina, because working with them, you know, they embrace their culture and have such a, a, a connection um, to their families, to the environment. And, you know, that's part of their, um, that's part, that's part of who they are. And they really embrace that um, and, and love that. And it's who they are every single day. And that working with them and how they interacted with each other really brought me back to wanting to learn more about, um, you know, more of my heritage or more of the roots that may have, that have been erased over the years. Um, you know, it's no secret Mexico was colonized um, way back then. And so a lot of that, uh, it, that heritage has been lost. And so um, it, it really was another defining moment of, of, uh, you know, not necessarily that I knew it was going to happen, but one of those that really brought me back to, okay, um, what it is, who it is you are, what it is, what it is you want to do, and who it is actually benefiting um, um, in, in terms of finding your identity. And speaking of your work with the Navajo, I know that, as I alluded to, that was part of your doctoral training was working with Navajo communities impacted by specifically the 2015 Gold King mine spill, which for those who don't know, was an environmental disaster where the EPA employees and restoration workers working on a mine in Colorado released toxic waste into the Animus River watershed. And I was wondering, what were some of your major research findings when you were working with the Navajo and how did you communicate these back to the community? Uh, and, and what were the reactions and the responses to your work? Um, <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so that was a, a, a huge collective effort. Um, you know, a lot of that was in collaboration with um, uh, the community health worker, community health representatives of the Navajo Nation, um, the Department of Health, their um, Navajo Nation EPA, University of Arizona, um, and, and quite a few uh, elders, um, Navajo elders that led that work. And 
um, the, the, my dissertation was really part of this bigger overall project that was funded by the National Institute of Health, led by PIs, um, Dr. Carletta Chief, who's Navajo, and Dr. Paloma Beamer, my dissertation advisor. And really what they were trying to, um, the projecting to do was through working with, with their communities, a uh, very culturally informed framework is one, identify um, environmental impacts into how the spill overall, um, if at any, had any cultural damage to them. And specifically to my dissertation work, the main findings were, one, we saw that, um, one, we identified activities with the river um, that we hadn't, that hadn't been considered in the risk assessment process, right? So before that, um, I think the scenario that the EPA used had been, oh, well, you know, we think they're safe because according to our scenario that a hiker drinking from this river only like 60 days of the year, they're going to be fine. Not really taking into account that people live there every day, breathe there every day, and they use that river for their cultural and spiritual purposes. And that really was like the big identifier, right? We identifying all these activities that should be put in a risk assessment to identify, um, are they going to be more exposed? Are they going to be at risk? And so that was one. We did find that overall um, across every category of, you know, either recreational use, um, cultural use, um, even um, spiritual and arts and craft, their activities released by, 50, by over 50%, meaning that, um meaning that they were no longer using the river. And really, it's kind of hard to put into words, but the best way to describe that is one, it it only it not only is impacting them now, it's one of those things that could potentially impact them in the long term, because um, these are teachings that they can't pass on to your children, right? And water is one of their sacred elements. So you're not only hurting in what we're calling, you know, quantitatively hurting them, we, we honestly almost that spill honestly destroyed, almost destroyed their their way of life. Um, and so that was one of our big findings and sort of understanding of how the spill really impacted this community. Um, even whether uh, one of the things is, is environmental, it doesn't seem like the, um, it does seem like because of how the river flows, all this acid mine drainage really ended up down in Lake Powell. So it was bigger than just saying, oh, well, you know, we did find these high metals in the river banks, which is, one of the findings, it's it's much bigger than just the environment. And um, Western society thinks to think of the environment as just, you know, water, air, soil. But it really is this, um, especially to Dene, is this balance. It's a balance between um, water, fire, earth. Um, and it, that was that was one of the things that was destroyed. Um, and we ended up, did have, um, working with our collaborators and the elders, they did end up having a healing ceremony um, to try to move past this in terms of how our results were communicated. <laughs> well, that was a really long endeavor. Um, we had both uh, from the beginning, we knew, um, you know, individual results to all the participants that came um, that so willingly participated in the study and at the, at also um, bigger community forums. Um, so I, I've lost track, but I think last time um, we had added it all up, it was over 20 different community um, outreach events held at the chapter houses, um, always having a, um, a Navajo translator uh, because uh, traditionally Diné is an oral language. And so that was very important to be able to reach um, those that are don't speak English um, that still um, converse in, in the Diné language. And so those were the main um, ways we were trying to make our voice out there. I know we also had radio forums um, and then <laughs> definitely always uh, working alongside uh, the community partners who knew best of, of um, 
you know, the radio stations to hit, uh, which chapter houses, which 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 uh, venue would be best to disseminate our results. That's a good lesson that when the research is over, at least for researchers like yourself, the work is a lot of times just begun. And I'm wondering if you can talk on the front end going into a community, and I don't know what your familiar, familiarity was with Navajo before that, but how much prep went into you embarking on this dissertation, just learning about the culture and maybe ways to go in in a respectful and uh, intentional way? Um, yeah, so I had not had the pleasure of working with them before. And um, it's one of those, it, it's, it's, so it really was a, um, it's really a credit to Dr. Carletta Chief. And um, she's also a first generation um, college graduate. Um, it very much, um, I think, uh, an icon for the for um, the Dene. She was Miss, Miss Navajo Nation. Um, and so she knew, um, you know, kind of what I kind of related to her is that she also kind of grew up in these, um, you know, both identity as Dene and in this Western American um, uh, type of environment. And it is very much a credit to her. She had those connections. Um, she knew the culture because she is, she is them. And so she knew, um, what needed to be done, who we needed to, um, connect with. And as an outsider, I would have not known, um, you know, first of all, even how to say hi, uh, who do I talk to? Where do I go? And that was really important to, um, you know, setting foot in there. And I originally just started uh, volunteering for them and trying to get the um, the scientific protocols, how we were going to get, um, y- you know, the different samples, more of the logistics behind it. And eventually, um, a few months later, I was like, you know, I think I could really, um, I really want to do my dissertation on this because uh, I, there's so many questions that the community has that I think I would be able to help them answer. And that included, um, you know, did the spell cause um how did the spell really impact them in terms of the activities and how we can build a better, uh, a, a culturally, um, a cultural, culturally relevant risk assessment. And so um, I, I didn't, it, I guess looking back now and moving forward, it's one of those things that I always carry is knowing, um, learning about the community and learning about their cultures before you go in and just like, you know, a lot of researchers kind of just say, well, I'm going to do the study with so-and-so and I've never met them, but, you know, I know best and I'm going to go in. And that is totally a wrong thing to, to know or to do. Um, I definitely would have, <laughs> you know, probably read some more books, talked to a few more people about what the customs and expectations were. But you kind of learn along the way. One of the things that I, um, you know, with every meeting that starts, they always start with a prayer and introducing who you are and who their clans are. And that's something that um, we don't really do in in, in other types of um, meetings. We never start out with, um, you know, acknowledging your place and time. And uh, that's that's kind of a shame because I think it it really does let you know who's in the room, how are you connected to each other, um, and setting that uh, precedent moving forward of, okay, we really are going to be working together um, in unison. I totally agree. I, I'm always uh, astounded by the parallels between science and journalism because I've uh, I did a lot of Indigenous reporting before I move into an editor role. And the last thing you just mentioned was one of the first things I remembered to traveling around the country was um, I would have my notebook out and ready to go. And let's just get on. uh, Let's get on with the show. And that's not how um, a lot of the tribes they interacted with operated. It was no. Who who are you? Who are we? Let's let's uh, I think you said it best. Our our, what was it? Our place and time. You know who we are. 
I really like that. Um, and, and it's kind of these interesting parallels between, between science and journalism. So now you're working with Latino communities in California to tease out disproportionate rates of uh, respiratory health illnesses. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that work and how you see this work and your work in the future fitting into advance social and environmental change. Yes. So currently I'm working with um, this bigger project um, really led by um, USC at, in Imperial Valley, uh, which is more in the south um, border community in California. And um, it, well, one, it, it's been, I think it's about one in five kids in that area, um, mostly Mexican-American, have uh, asthma, which is a, the, one of the highest percentages here in California and just Mexican-Americans overall. And um, really tied to that bigger is answering the question, well, why? Because you kind of don't see these rates elsewhere. And one of the, um, you know, one of one of the ways we think um, they're being uh, that may, or alluding to what that might be is there's this, um, which is kind of, you know, I don't know how familiar people are with it, but Salton Sea, which is a dry and saline lake. And over the years, different um, water demands and just climate change overall has really um, dried that lake out. And it's kind of, um, you know, not, not, not evaporated, but it's left behind uh, more of what they call La Playa. playa um, so just dust and the environment exposed. And that gets suspended in the air. Um, and it makes its way all across that area. And so really what my work is trying to understand um, one different, um, the elemental composition of that and how that might be contributing to those higher rates in that area, along with, the, um, uh, along with, along with um, a couple of other different environmental contaminants that are known in that area. And so it's really teasing out, okay, um, how is this really affecting that community? And in terms of social and environmental change moving forward, well, these is not really, while it does seem unique to that area, it's really not, right? So we've seen um, overall just different areas become that more dry environment. that is really, uh, we don't know what, what's to come. Um, and uh, me, along with other researchers, have really kind of put this call out to really need to be looking into how climate change is impacting um, and tying in more to health effects. And because I think that along the way, we've, we've, in terms of climate change research, it's really been this focus on like, oh, you know, it's affecting our animals or it's affecting um, this sort of silo of the world. But in terms of how that actually impacts people, um, we haven't really been, especially environmental health world, we haven't really been, um, we haven't really been focused, um, not focused, but we haven't really been uh, doing, I think, our job to trying to tie these two um, areas of research together. And you're obviously in this Agents of Change program because on some level, you have an interest in communicating your work and your experiences to to a broader audience than beyond maybe the scientific journals. So I was wondering how you see science communication fitting into your broader work moving forward. I do. So (laughs) it's a a realm that I'm trying to get better at, (laughs) not necessarily if that's, you know, still coming true, but um, I trying to, I'm not the first one to say this, but um, I was really inspired by, um, I want to say it was Sacoby Wilson, um, Dr. Sacoby Wilson. And he says, um, I think in one of the many research meetings I've encountered um, in spaces, he said something, you know, our journal or dusty journals don't do good in our shelves. Um, And that's, you know, trying to get um, 
our our work out there in in these other spaces that um that aren't necessarily just peer to peer literature is super important. And science communication is not something we're actually trained on. <laughs> I mean, I think some people are, uh, which you know I'm kind of jealous of. But uh, in terms of research researchers or even public health, environmental health, we're not necessarily, there's no class, I mean, that I've seen that says, here's how you're going to do science communication. Like, these are the steps, these are, um, you know, you're writing the way you're uh, either communicating through social media or anything like that. There's no course in that. So we kind of learn along the way if this is something that we want to do. Um, and to me, I kind of see this as, um, you know, it, I have this platform. I have, um, as my mom would say, para que tanta educación si no vas a ayudar, which really translates to what's what's all this education if you're not going to help. And so I do really see this as like an advocacy um, part of my job as a scientist to try to get better at that. So um, to be able to communicate with the public and um, kind of, you know, bridge these two worlds that um, I think some scientists have looked down upon um, of being quiet or, you know, that thinking of science speaks for itself. But really, that's only something afforded to the privileged and elitist, in my opinion, because not everybody is going to have access to um, the this research world that people try to kind of put in a um, and this spot that only belongs to certain people. And that's not real. And for me, science communication is about um, being open and transparent and people having access to your knowledge um, and you having access to them. I need that quote from your mom on all of my emails that I send to scientists who don't want to talk to me just to give them a little kick in the rear a little bit. So what role do you think social media plays in what you were just talking about, getting your science out to a broader audience? Um, I, I, there's a wide uh, array of opinions on this, uh, on, on how to use it and if it's a good or bad. And I think uh, Amizoda, Dr. Amizoda, the founder, calls it uh, an agnostic tool. You know, it's a tool to get your research out. So I'm wondering um, kind of how you use social media now and what role you see it playing for you in the future. So I love social media. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and obviously, I, th I think like many of me, uh, you know, the millennial age, we kind of urgently, it was, you know, like just personal usage, right? And it's become, um, it's, it's become so much bigger than that. It's, I think a lot of people get their, their primary news is where they, where they come from. Um, I primarily stick to Twitter and Instagram. I, I think just because, you know, those are the ones that undergrad, those are the ones that came about. Um, but I do see it as a way to um, reach a certain, um, to reach people. And I think it's one of those also keeping in mind who is the, the usage. So for, I always come back to, you know, um, the elder um, elder people probably wouldn't be using, um, I mean, some of them probably would be using Twitter, but it is, it is one of those generational things. And knowing your audience, I would also I think that, um, especially for science communication, uh, sticking to some of the more um, either print or web-based formats um, for social media. So it is something I'm trying to get better at, um, you know, how, how formatting tweets, the timing of them and all that stuff. Um, and uh, I was going to say something else about it, but I kind of forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Have you used it much yet in terms of, so it sounds like you use social media quite a bit. Have you used it on a, on a, in a science capacity or is it mostly kind of personal, personal use so far? Um, so in terms of the science capacity, I, it is something I want to move towards um, using it. I, I saw, um, I've always trying to think of way, I mean, not that I, I haven't gone there, but it's just something I'm very 
you know, thinking about how can I actually integrate it into my work. And um, I had joked around that we should probably make, um, I think for Imperial Valley, when we were trying to get um, um, one of the things is that we measure lung function for the children there trying to study their respiratory health. And um, I kind of joked and said that we should probably just make a TikTok video on how to use it. <laughs> and that would, you know, probably work wonders for us. And, um, you know, I haven't actually done that. But um, I think that is something that, you know, trying to get that training or trying to get, um, you know, probably like tries and fails to try to do that. I saw one of them, a recent TikTok. Um, I don't really know who actually did it, but it was on um, explaining um, redlining. And I thought that was genius uh, because it is something that um, th that kind of gets all those views in, in a short amount of time, really conveying that message. And that's, and that's hard. Um, it's hard to do that, condense everything, you know, years of research, years of education, years of trying to communicate into these second videos. Um, but it's, it's super powerful. And you see it just by how, um, you know, now, how, how many, how many people you're actually able to reach. That is one thing with social media. And it really started with Twitter when it was, I can't remember if it's 140 characters, but it forced people in the news and, and scientists and others to, you really have to boil your message down. And now TikTok, which I'm not terribly familiar with, but I think it's short videos, right? Kind of. Yeah, they're a little short videos. Um, I don't have a TikTok, so please don't look me up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're, for what I understand, they're short videos. I should probably make one and like try to get good at it. Um, but they are. They're, um, I, I don't know exactly how long they are, but they're not these, you know, hour long YouTube videos um, that we were so used to and like trying to get all your information. They really do come down to, okay, what's your point? Um, and you don't really have time to go all um, through all these details that, you know, are important, but not for the message that you're necessarily trying to give. So from new media to one of the oldest mediums, uh, my last question is, what is the last book you read for fun? Last book I read for fun? Um, well, good thing for this 2020. <laughs> it kind of brought me back to my love for books. Um, and so I haven't finished it. Um, I think I'm in the last chapter, but it is a book that I'm reading for fun. And it's... Um, a book by Maria Hinojosa um, called Once I Was You. And she is, um, uh, well, she is like, it was like, she is, she is it. <laughs> but she's uh, a Latina journalist. Um, and it's a, her book is a, her memoir really about her growing up and finding her own space. Um, and, and also, I, you know, you're probably more familiar with that in a journalism world um, that, um, she really paved the way for um, a lot of Latino journalists to find their own voice and, you know, make their own space when it wasn't really, um, you know, it wasn't given to them. They they fought for everything they had. Well, Yoshi, thank you so much for taking time today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> There you have it. That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Yoshida. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram or at ehn.org under our special projects tab. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast production team is myself, Ami Zoda, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, and Raya Haddad. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just a chat. 
and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join us next time when I speak with Agents of Change fellow April Ballard, a PhD candidate at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. Have a great week, folks.